been asking myself about double standards a lot lately, um, both, you know, in public life, but also in science. And I'm particularly concerned about double standards in science, um, whereby women's issues are viewed differently than men's. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've lagged behind in really important ways um, because there is a um, concern that if we have a biological explanation for women's behavior, that um, that will, you know, smash women up against the glass ceiling, whereas a biological explanation for men's behavior doesn't do such a thing. And so um, we've been freer, I think, in biomedical science to explore questions about um, the biological foundations of men's behavior, whereas we've been less free to explore those questions about women's behavior. And I think that that's really a problem. And I think that it's a problem that manifests itself in the lag behind um, what we understand about men and what we understand about women. Um, and I'll give a couple of examples. Um, it, you know, so men have their bedroom troubles uh, that have been solved by and large by uh, pharmaceutical companies. Whereas women's have not. And women's desires may very well be more complicated. You know, that may be a more complicated problem than, um, you know, solving a mechanical problem for men. Um, but, but we just don't know much. And, you know, and what we do have um, by way of um, pharmaceutical interventions uh, are, are, are really kind of terrible and nobody wants to use them. So we have Viagra for men that solved men's, a lot of men's bedroom troubles. Um, we have something called Flabanserin, very sexy name for women. Um, and um, it's something that, so but men can take Viagra within an hour of wanting to have sex, and that will solve um, a lot of the problems that men have, erectile dysfunction. Um, whereas, you know, flibanserin, which is supposed to solve some of the problems of women's sexual desire, or lack thereof, um, women have to take it every day. Um, it uh, makes them lightheaded and prone to uh, actually passing out. <laughs> and they can't drink alcohol <laughs> when they're taking it. So, you know, it's like there's a real inequality there. Um, and so I just think, you, you, you know, there's, there's, so there are, there are a couple of factors here. One is, is a, I, I believe, a bias against understanding um, the biological factors that underlie women's behavior because of a sexual double standard, and I can elaborate on that. 
Um, and, and another is that men have often been viewed, males in general across animal species, have been viewed as the default. Um, and so therefore, if you understand males, you understand females. And even at the cellular level, that is not the case. And the NIH has now started to recognize that. Um, and um, it is a requirement that clinical trials involve equal numbers of males and females unless there are, you know, really good reasons for why, you know, why there, why a, a researcher would want to study males to the exclusion of females or females to the exclusion of males. Gender right, the question about, about gender versus sex, like what do we call it? Um, this is this is something that I confront uh, at UCLA when I teach, because I teach in an interdisciplinary course. Um, there are four of us: a geneticist, a physiologist, me, the psychologist, um, and then a feminist um, sociologist. And this is something that we really wrestle with, you know. So when do we call it gender versus when do we call it sex? I always call it sex. Because I'm thinking about male versus female, but I completely recognize that there is a lot of, um, and I have become more appreciative of this over time, um, that there is um, some fluidity, that there are um, gray areas. So one of my co-instructors um, runs an intersex clinic where he studies babies who are born with genitalia that are neither clearly male nor female, um, and studies a variety of other issues. And so there's, there, there is this fluidity, and then th that's a case where I think we call it gender. But it still has a biological underpinning, whether we call it gender or we call it sex. Um, I think that it's important to recognize the variation, mm -hmm. but I think that, um, you know, going to the extreme whereby we don't recognize the biological foundations and we don't recognize sex typicality where, you know, where it's completely appropriate to talk about male versus female and to call that sex. You know, I've read papers in which guppies have been referred to as having gender, Guppies <laughs> don't have gender, as far as I know. Um, it, you know, not in the way that we think about it with respect to humans. Um, uh, I'll just give an example um, of something that's come up um, when I'm teaching in this sex and gender course. It's the um, it's a it's an interdisciplinary course. It's the um, it's Sex from Biology to Gendered Society is the name of the course. Mm -hmm. um, it is the so-called sex cluster at UCLA <laughs> um, because it is a cluster course, meaning that, that it's across the entire year um, that it's taught. Um, and I was absolutely shocked the first time that we asked the question, should there be, and this was before a lot of the political discussion, um, but I was shocked when we asked the question, should there be uh, gender nonspecific bathrooms on campus? We spent 
45 minutes discussing this with our freshmen. Um, and I just, I was really surprised that it was as much of a political issue as it is. And I understand it better now. Um, and I very much appreciate it. Um, and it's become more of a political issue for sure. Um, but at the time I thought, you know, why in the world are we talking about, um, the bathroom issue for 45 minutes, but, but I, but I totally get it. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a matter of discrimination. It's a matter of, um, um, making people feel like they can be who they are. Um, but it was, it was an eye, it was an eye opener for me. I was fascinated by psychology and I, 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 I thought that, that I would become um, a psychologist, which at the time I thought meant being a clinical psychologist, or I would become a lawyer because I liked to argue. Um, and then I realized that I could enjoy arguing as a psychologist because I thought the theories at the time that I was exposed to as an undergraduate and, and and to some extent as a graduate student, they were leaving out really important um, insights that stemmed from biology. And so this has always been a theme for me. It was clear to me that the theories of the time, and so this would have been back in the um, early 90s, um, the theories of the time were heavily biased toward purely social explanations. And I just didn't find that all that plausible. I had this experience uh, as an undergraduate in a philosophy of mind course. Um, when the professor explained the difference between dualism and materialism, um, and dualism was, by his explanation, you know, there is the mind and there is the body. And there's some sort of gremlin driving the motor of the mind. I don't, you know, you know, it wasn't clear that, that the mind is this sort of, you know, ephemeral, detached thing. Whereas materialism is, you know, it's all mechanics and that's that, you know, it's all tied to the brain. And he asked the students in the class, um, who is a dualist? And every hand in the room went up, except mine. And I looked around and I thought, what is wrong with you guys? And then he said, and who is a materialist? And I raised my hand. And I just, you know, and so that was, that was a formative moment. You know, if we've learned anything, um, it's that you can't say that it's all biology or that it's all, you know, I mean, it's all, you know, there's an interaction and, 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 you know, we have to consider social context when we're trying to explain behavior as well, because we're taking social input into our minds, um, processing it, you know, via these evolved mechanisms that have evolved over eons. Um, and so, 
it's not one or the other, but to ignore biology is, you know, I think a, is, is, is a real problem. And as a psychologist, um, I have confronted a lot of um, resistance to this. Um, because people think that if you have a biological explanation for behavior, and this is in particular for women's behavior, as I mentioned, um, that you're going to undermine women somehow. And so there's, there's a real political backdrop here, um, and... Um, I've just resisted that throughout my entire career, and it's and it has gotten me into tons of trouble. In psychology, I think that it is there's some baby boomer generation uh, feminists. Um, I consider myself a feminist, um, but I don't think that we sh you know short circuit understand fully understanding all of the causes of our behavior in order to uh, be um, supporting women and supporting equality. Um, in fact, I think that, that it's actually quite backwards to ignore bio biology um, and because we end up not having full knowledge of uh, all of the things that would be informative to women if, as they make choices in their personal lives. And as they have access to things that are uh, important technologies for their lives, they're scientists with an agenda. And I'm not going to tell you that I, um, I, I often thought throughout my scientific career that I had no agenda. It was just about the facts, mm -hmm. just the facts, please. Um, but I. The, the more I have progressed in my scientific career, the more I have recognized that I actually do have an agenda. And it is to combat um, these forces of, um, you know, concealment or um, what's the word that I'm looking for? The, the, these forces that, that make people um, back off of scientific findings that might be controversial. So I've been studying for the last 15 years the impact of women's hormones on their behavior. And I've gotten a lot of pushback on that. Um, so if you study hormones on women's behavior, then the idea is that you're going to be justifying this notion that women's hormones make them irrational. Um, whereas you don't have the same kind of concern about men's hormones making them irrational. You know, nobody ever said that um, a male politician was disqualified for office because he had testosterone, whereas the opposite is not true for women and their hormones. Um, so that's one example. So my area is evolutionary social science, broadly construed. Um, a lot of people would probably call me an evolutionary psychologist. Um, I do research in areas within social psychology, including relationships. Uh, my early work was 
mostly on mating relationships, but I've become more and more interested in um, sort of the outcomes of mating relationships, including parenting and um, and and what happens during um, pregnancy and in the postpartum period. Um, so it's sort of a variety of things that have to do with intimate relationships. The work from my lab is best known for um, doing rigorous studies of changes across women's ovulatory cycle mm -hmm. in their mate preferences, in their social behaviors. Um, so one of the first things that I think caught the attention of other researchers was our finding that um, women feel more attracted to men other than their primary partners when they're in the fertile days of their cycle, which suggests that they're doing some mate shopping, that they're considering mating alternatives. It was very controversial. I've never had a paper rejected more times than that paper, that first paper that we wrote. Um, I think it took five tries to get it published well, and it's been and, and it's been cited hundreds of times so you know it, once it ultimately um, got out it was uh, it was an influential paper but the the primary finding was there were a variety of findings but but the one that I think caught the most note was that women who were partnered with men who were, um, not particularly sexually attractive, they were noticing other men on high fertility days of their cycle, so, and they were flirting with them more. This was based on um, reports um, of their behaviors across days of their cycle. We actually interviewed, well, we didn't interview them, we had them um, report every day in a a questionnaire form across an entire cycle and women didn't know that we were tracking their cycles they just knew that they were reporting to us every day and we found that that those changes and we found that now several times um, so but we had a really hard time publishing the paper because I think that people just didn't want there, there were a couple of problems but one was that people just didn't want to recognize the animal in the human um, and that we might have estrus-like behaviors um, as humans because there are there are indeed things that are very different about human behavior than about animal behavior but that doesn't mean that there aren't um, still some commonalities there we had resistance from um, biological audiences because they they really wanted us to you know do the equivalent of uh, um, rats in cages as opposed to you know the observational studies in humans and so they were reluctant to and and you know they also I think you know they're human beings these researchers are human beings, and so they're seeing very different patterns in humans as opposed to in their um, non-human animal models. And you know, I've bought into that 
idea that that humans and animals are vastly different. Um, so I think we ran up against that as resistance, and then we ran up against um, just this this bias against biology in psychology, um, which I think is is changing. It's definitely it's definitely gotten better. I think it doesn't hurt that I'm a woman <laughs> doing this research. If I were if I were a man um, doing this research, that maybe I would encounter more resistance. So that's helped. We do get um, uh, attention for our research in the media. Um, and um, it's often um, sort of, so in the, in the feminist blogosphere, it can be quite obnoxious. Um, and, and, it's, and it often seems as if well, actually, it is often the case that the paper itself has not been read by whoever is writing about it because they get the facts okay. wrong. I feel like I've actually received a warm reception from most of my psychological colleagues. I definitely have had resistance. We've had, you know, when we publish a paper, sometimes there will be a... Um, a series of rebuttals and then we will have to come back and respond um, and um, I think that we've been pretty successful in doing so because the the um, the responses that we get you know are often um, motivated by ideology and that's it's pretty easy to overcome them with data um, and we've been prepared to do so. Um, but otherwise, I, I feel like I've gotten a, a fairly warm reception. And in part, it might be because the work is somewhat controversial. So it's fun to have a colleague come in and stir it up a little bit. We don't know enough about really important issues that impact women. Um, we don't know enough about potential side effects of using hormonal contraception. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of speculation about it. I think most of the speculation is problematic and the data are very problematic, so we just just don't know enough about that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you eliminate women's hormone cycles, what are the implications? Um, I think that's a really important question. Um, we still don't know enough about um, hormone supplements for women later in life. Um, we don't even know enough about fertility. Um, the data on fertility um, in women's you know, third, fourth, fifth decades of life are based on ancient records, 200 years old. Um, and so, you know, and so the, the, the statistics that doctors will cite when they are telling women whether they need to see a fertility specialist or not are, are based, you know, they're, they're before modern medicine was really in place. And, and it's just, it's, it's outrageous. Um, and I, so I, I just think that more recognition of the biological influences on women's behavior is going to awaken these areas of research and that will have a positive impact. You know, my agenda is not 
um, to to um, be applied in that sense. Mm-hmm. My agenda has always just been scientific curiosity. Mm-hmm. But as I have um, progressed in my scientific career, I've recognized that there are these implications, and I've gotten a little bit fired up about it. <laughs> you know, most of it is about new questions that we need to ask and that we need to fully address. Um, so things like, you know, just how important is breastfeeding in a woman's postpartum psychological health? And there's a lot of debate about that. And there's a lot of, you know, there's the La Leche League on one side, and they are, you know, pushing an agenda that says that absolutely you must do this um, without a lot of scientific evidence behind them. And then, you know, on the other side, there's the, you know, you just do whatever works for you. Um, and then sort of, you know, in the middle is is um, political policy or, you know, uh Um, policies, uh, workplace policies that make it difficult for women to freely choose. So I think those are, that's like a super important issue for us to fully explore Um, because postpartum depression is a big deal Um, and, um, you know, infant health is a big deal Um, but we're not confronting it um, from a, you know, totally authentic biological perspective. Um, I think that uh, that the pill has been so important for women's ability to control their reproductive destinies and um, to achieve professionally, but we don't fully understand all of the psychological side effects. We understand the physical side effects, but we don't understand all the psychological side effects because we're not dealing with this issue of how hormones affect women's behavior. I think that understand, better understanding women's hormones has a huge, has huge implications for um, bettering their sexual lives. Um, and so you know, I think that we really need to confront these issues in order to improve women's well-being. In general, I have asked the dangerous questions. <laughs> you know, I mean, the women and hormones question, that was a bit of a, you know, dangerous question. The women and hormones and mate preferences question and whether it might lead women to consider their mating alternatives. You know, that's a pretty dangerous question. So I have definitely, um, I've, I've not steered away entirely from those dangerous ideas. Um, I think the hormonal contraception question is a pretty dangerous idea. Um, I, I, I've said that I have some skepticism about the speculation that is, exists in the literature about the harmful effects of hormonal contraception, and I certainly believe that there are beneficial effects of hormonal contraception, but I think continuing to ask that question about, you know, how might it impair women's um, 
ability to choose a mate that they will be satisfied with for the, for the rest of their lives? I think that's a pretty dangerous question. So hormonal contraception, uh, that would include the pill, it would include um, implants, it would include the vaginal ring, anything that is using hormones to um, eliminate ovulation or to otherwise um, control um, otherwise prevent conception um, and I think you know just asking the question are there negative psychological impacts of using hormonal contraception is a pretty dangerous question mm -hmm. because there are such clear um, social benefits to women and so I think we have to be really careful about interpreting the research in that area but I don't think we should not ask the question you know, we continue to get a little bit more techie in my lab. Um, one thing that we've been looking at is um, uh, the um, gene activation as a consequence of social behaviors. So uh, we have a study that's um, new. Um, not yet published, um, that shows that um, women, when they start new relationships and then they say that they have fallen in love with their partner, their um, immune gene transcription profile suggests that they are um, uh, increasing their antiviral resistance so, I, you know, I mean, we, it, 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 which makes sense, right? Viruses are socially transmitted. Um, so, you know, I think we, we keep pushing the boundaries um, in terms of understanding the low-level biology, but connecting it to our psychology as well. Um, but I've also gotten more and more interested in, um, at sort of the broader social level, thinking about inequality and the sources of um, inequality uh, amongst men and women. Mm -hmm. And um, that's been prompted to some degree by, um, by teaching and by my students, my, my graduate students as well. Um, and by thinking about the fact that um, the biases that exist are um, the sex-typed biases that exist are, are interfering with our ability to do research. So that's, I, I may become a little bit more um, active in speaking up about those things, even though I never really thought of myself as, um, as being a, an activist or being, you know, motivated by by what, what politics, would I would be an activist for um, doing, giving equal treatment to women's issues mm -hmm. and to promoting understanding the biological underpinnings of women's behavior. We've actually done a lot of research on um, the major histocompatibility complex, which is a series of genes that are involved in immunity, and there's a key theory that if you pick a mate who has a different MHC 
type than you, then you produce an offspring that is more diverse and therefore more resistant to various kinds of infections. And we are not finding much evidence for that. Um, we've got a couple of papers. Uh, one, one is out, one is on the way. Um, and it's really quite sad because I wanted the hypothesis to be true because it's one of these things in evolutionary psychology where it's not like just the tens go with the tens, the nines go with the nines, and, and so on, right? Which is a little bit of a depressing story, especially if you might think of yourself as not a 10. Um, but instead, it's just like you need to find your, you know, other type, and then, you know, you'll be well-matched. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't look like that's true. It's true in mice, it's true in lizards, but it doesn't look like it's true for humans. We, we, collect, we collected, uh, we recruited women who were new in relationships, um, and then we collected blood from them, and um, then they reported to us over time about what was happening in their relationships, and when they reported to us that they felt like they had fallen in love with their partner, we, or if they'd broken up, we brought them back into the lab and collected more blood. Um, and so you can do gene transcription profiling to see what um, immune cells are doing, leukocytes, what they are doing. And um, they can express increased um, antibacterial functioning or antiviral functioning. Or in, in our case, actually, it looked like a little bit of both. Um, and so um, we expected that there would be less antibacterial and more antiviral functioning. Um, we actually found a little bit of both. Um, we thought that, that they would express more antiviral functioning because you're in a relationship with a new person, you're exchanging bodily fluids, <laughs> and so it would be a good idea to um, use your body resources to fend off those mm-hmm. viruses. Um, previous research had shown that there was less anti, um, that there was a reduction in um, uh, antibacterial functioning if people were in close relationships or an increase if they were, for example, if they'd lost their spouse. So that's why we thought that there might be the, that difference, but we saw a little bit of each. And it's quite fascinating, and, and maybe it's something that we'll pursue in the future.